As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Cause this is my road, less camera action, I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Yeah, this is my road, less camera action, I'm ready to go All of my shows are historic, in my mind, they're historic and her historic uh, For his, his, his history, our history, her history the world's history. And today we're definitely going to talk about the world's history and history is going to be written about what we've encountered over the last uh, three years in terms of infectious diseases. But actually you could look at global history from the beginning of time and see plagues and, and diseases and how that has impacted society and our growth and productivity. Uh, today's topic is really current to say the least. It's current, it's topical, it's immediate, and it's probable. New frontiers and vaccines for infectious diseases. The topic is new frontiers and vaccines for infectious diseases. Uh, this is a critical, critical show. Uh, Dr. Onioma Obugo is with us, Reverend Dr. Leroy Perry. <coughs> Dr. Perry is pastor of St. Stephen's AME Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Reverend Elvin Clayton is with us, pastor of Walters Memorial AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Dr. O, as people refer to Dr. Oniyama uh, colloquially, is, is again, associate professor and, at, and also at the Yale Institute for Global Health. And I emphasize the Yale Institute for Global Health. We're in New Haven, broadcasting from New Haven and New, and New England, but this is a global show. Uh, as many of you might know, Dr. O is also a renowned researcher and, and lead on multiple investigational, therapeutic and preventative clinical trials for not only COVID-19, but as well as the Pfizer, BioNTech, and GSK's Sanofield COVID-19 vaccine trials. So yes, you, people have been boosted, people have taken shots, but there's but we have miles to go before we sleep, everybody. Uh, Dr. O is here to tell us about what these miles to go mean so we can live our miles to go in, in a fruitful and healthful and prosperous, prosperous fashion. Uh, welcome everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing well. Good, good, good. D Dr. O, tell us a little bit about what you do and what is your work at Yale. And I know we haven't had a chance to read your biography yet, and I know you're going to write your book, and we only have 55 minutes, but tell us a little bit uh, about what you do and what your work that is involved with at Yale. And we're going to drill down and, and talk collaboratively about vaccines and prevention and boosters and flu, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, uh, Tom, for having me again on this show. And great to see Reverend uh, Perry and Clayton, who have become my friends, you know, over these uh, past few years and have been a great addition to both my personal and professional life. Um, just, you know, so I'm an infectious disease doctor. I trained, I did my fellowship training, which is my specialty training in infectious disease at Yale. And early on in my, uh, my subspecialty training, um, beyond just being an infectious disease physician, I'd always been interested in how I could leverage the work and skills and expertise I developed to truly make an impact. I mean, that sounds a little generic because that's what, you know, every, hopefully every physician, you know, whose heart is in the right place wants to do. But I think you feel even more blessed when you have the opportunities to do so. And so one of the areas that really fascinated me was in the area of therapeutics and prevention. You know, like they say, you know, an ounce of prevention is what a pound of cure, right? Something like that, right? So, um, uh, you know, I've been focused mostly on uh, viral infections. When you think about the history of man and the type of infections that uh, cause the greatest amount of morbidity and mortality, I think if you look at through the annals of history, you see that viral infections, right? So you guys can think back historically to the Spanish flu, you know, and, you know, for example, right, that killed a lot of people, you know, ravaged the populations. And they had always been the predictions that if we're thinking, if we wanted to think about a plague, that was going to ravage the world, it would be some kind of a viral infection that was transmitted through a respiratory route. 
And so it's interesting that some of those great fears that we have had have essentially played out with the COVID-19 pandemic and even other contemporary things like Ebola, which comes and goes, the monkeypox vaccine. These are all viruses that we're contemporarily dealing with. And interestingly, um, you know, these all emerged from animal reservoirs, which go to, you know, talk about the human interaction with our environment and how that's, you know, introducing new conditions, both now and we think that will be the pathway in the future. So I got interested in a lot of these things and so um, I got involved with uh, clinical trials, which is really that scientific rigorous way to assess whether therapies work, whether vaccines work, and then also to lead them on the path of getting regulatory approval. And regulatory approval means being assessed by, again, regulators like the FDA uh, are in the business of uh, you know, uh, assessing therapy. Who review the you know the data that we send in from the clinical trials and like, make an assessment if you know a vaccine or a therapeutic is safe for the public, which leads to authorization in the which is a special arrangement in times of pandemics when you need an immediate release of of you know therapeutics and vaccines because it need is urgent even pre-approval. So it's kind of a pandemic mechanism, right, to make these things available. And so I've been doing clinical trials. Um, I focus mostly on HIV, um, a disease that we all know disproportionately affects um, uh, ethnic racial minorities, but it's a global disease like Tom rightly mentioned, right? It ravages two thirds of adult HIVs in Sub-Saharan Africa. 90% of pediatric HIV is in Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's also given me the opportunity, not just to work in the US, but also to work internationally addressing what I consider to be the key public health threats. So I'm currently an associate professor at Yale. I'm a teacher. I teach medical students and infectious disease fellows and residents. I'm a researcher, I do the clinical trials, but I love being a clinician too. So I provide care to my HIV patients, you know, twice or three times a week uh, when I have time and also see uh, sick patients on, on, uh, on the ward. So I'm really excited that I have a career that allows me to, you know, the bits and pieces of things I really like, like to do. And um, it's just been an, an amazing journey so far with all the contemporary uh, viral challenges that we have. And, and we're going to drill, drill down in terms of some of the details and the, and the rollout and the methodology and how people can be involved with the trials. But I want I wanted to bring in really really quickly, uh, uh, Reverend Clayton and, and Reverend Perry, in the sense that uh, Dr. Earl, you're doing a fantastic job of communicating the information. You've been on various radio shows and, and national networks, but still, it seems that people need to boots on the ground. So Reverend Perry and Reverend Reverend Clayton are really folks that represent boots on the ground that disseminating the information, even if not apostles, they're certainly disciples of the, of the information. I guess wondered, uh, Reverend Perry, if you wanted to comment on how, how has Dr. O even found, town, found time to, to get married? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is, that's a great question. It, it was a mystery to all of us. He's very uh, close to the vest kind of guy but uh, he's very decisive. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was shocked. Uh, he even approached me in a, in a kind of uh, surreptitious way. <laughs> I did a wedding for Tisha and I dropped the rings and he said to me, if you were to marry somebody, would you drop the rings again? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that was good luck. That's an African tradition. Uh, Kissing it to Mother Earth and raising it back up to God. <laughs> so, so just to clarify for our listeners, you're able to kind of officiate for the wedding for for Doctor O. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. That's great. Uh, let uh, Doctor O and and we want everybody can kind of kind of weigh in here. Uh, and you've referenced the, the, the critical historical and historical importance of vaccines, but just we don't. I don't want to leave this point about how, particularly in terms of African Americans, how it's so important. And then the, the role of clinical research. Uh, Dr. I'll just say a little bit more about that and, and I'll invite Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton to join in as well. Yeah, um, so there's a very important comment that I'd like to mention, I think. Um, and I think I probably heard it, you know, uh, on a program with, with uh, Dr. Fauci, who's become a household name, is that we would like people who participate in clinical trials to look like the people who suffer a disease. Mm. That's very powerful, right? So if we have a disease that disproportionately impacts people of color, 
you'd like that the trials and the therapeutics, not just on the back end, which is the when the trials are done to try and figure out what works. And then on the front end, um, that when these are approved, that they're also available to mm -hmm. individuals that are most impacted by disease. I think it's such a powerful, uh, uh, powerful uh, statement. So I think that, you know, again, one of the reasons I do what I do is, um, you know, just that passion to, to deal with uh, diseases that disproportionately impact, um, you know, men and women of color. And hoping that, you know, through our work with clinical trials that we can always sensitize individuals because one of the commonest questions we get when there's a new drug is, does it work for people like me? And the only way we can answer that question is if people like you were involved in the clinical trials, you know, mm -hmm. the question is, does it work differently by racial lines and other things? You know, sometimes the mix of underlying disease conditions we have. So, for example, an immune compromising condition like HIV disproportionately affects men and women of color so that you want to have those answers ahead of time when therapeutics and vaccines are available. And we all know the history of clinical trials. I think there's in the backdrop of all the historical injustices we know about Tuskegee and so many other uh, scientific experiments that were done in very unethical ways and, you know, you know, intersected with like almost a slavery mindset and, you know, this, the inferiority of one race uh, to another that fed into that. And I understand that that has bred suspicion over time and also really dealt contemporaneously with all the issues that we're dealing with as a society now that, again, um, where people feel disenfranchised, um, not valued, uh, treated differently, not respected intrinsically just by virtue of a characteristic that they have. So in, in this milieu of, you know, society and history, um, you know, it's been challenging, you know, but I think that the word we need to continue to, to get out there is that, you know, if we don't participate on in things, if we sit on the sidelines, then we stand to even make a bad situation worse because we don't tend to benefit from, from these things. And, you know, science has been great. Science has contributed to huge advances in things like life expectancy. You know, we keep seeing that creep up, although we took a hit with COVID-19. And these all two great treatments for so many diseases, you know, killer diseases like viral infections, like cancers. So, you know, the future is brighter. You know, the predictions are the first group of people who are going to live to be 150 are born already, right? Which is a projection, scientific models that, you know, based on just the advances in healthcare and environment and all those, that there's still huge challenges, but that we may be able to even experience much more greater gains in life expectancy, but we need to carry um, everyone along. And that includes, um, you know, everyone, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your place in society. And that's kind of what we're all uh, fighting for. Excellent. You know, Dr. O, just before I ask you about the new booster for COVID-19, because people have been hearing about that, I guess wondered, Reverend Perry and Reverend Reverend Clayton, both of you have participated in trials before, so let me, let me give you a chance to testify a little bit about why that's why you decided to do that to, to participate in, in trials. Uh, yeah, let's testify, Reverend Perry. Testify. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want. I, I just want to say how much we appreciate uh, Dr. Oniyama because it is not often that minority populations get the opportunity to hear directly from the research persons and to be able to collaborate with them and to um, help with the, with the recruitment. And I think that is just, that, that's just goes to show you the one-sidedness of this whole medical world in which we live. You know, um, we, if the pandemic, taught us nothing, it taught us that, that there is a great divide. And how do we break that divide? How do we, how do we somehow change outcomes? And it's only because of, of uh, the outreach of Dr. O in terms of the Pfizer study that we were able to help with recruitment and be participants at the same time, which is a beautiful thing. Um, and so, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing dialogue. It's something that we have to work at in terms of messaging, in terms of getting the word out. And, you know, Dr. O mentioned the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, it's not just, you know, we, we America saw disproportionately how 
these diseases affect people of color. But it's not only in America, it's all over the world. And we need to bring attention to that. I mean, in, in Haiti, in Africa, where they don't have the medical uh, resources that we have, we have to somehow realize that this affects all of us. And so it just can't be here in New Haven or in America, but we have to look at this in a worldwide way and do the best that we can to make, to give the information, the knowledge and the resources if we're gonna really benefit humanity. Reverend Clayton? Yes, sir. First of all, uh, <clears throat> I became part of the COVID study because um, we understand from being a culture ambassadors that you need people from every ethnic group to be a part of the studies in order for them to work properly for, for us and for others as well. And, and, and doing that, um, it, it, it opened up a door for other members of my family, members of the church, because they saw that we were willing to be a part of this study. And not only um, were I part of that, but today, <laughs> when we finish this show, Dr. O, I, I will be a part of the um, flu vaccine that, that you'll talk about later. Th these, these things are important because people of every population, people of different age brackets need to be a part of this so that these medications will work properly for all people. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Dr. O, let's, there's so many so many questions I want to ask, and we only have like 40, 40 or so minutes. But uh, <coughs> excuse me, but talk to us a little bit about this the new booster for for COVID nineteen because I've been reading something recently that people are still reluctant to to do it. And but I was just curious, what what questions would you recommend that people ask when scheduling for the booster if yes. they have not already uh, had the COVID nineteen infection? So bring it bring us up to date about again, we're not out of the woods yet. Correct. Absolutely. And I think I want to double down or triple down on what you said. We're not out of the woods yet. And some of the indicators we're seeing um, are twofold. One is it appears that other parts of the world tend to have um, signal what will happen in the U.S. and currently in Europe now. They're having an increase in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. And as goes Europe, tends to go U.S. a couple of months later. And so I think, and then also one of the ways that they assess for just the community prevalence of disease is looking at wastewater surveillance, how much virus is in the wastewater that's collected from households and communities and pulled together. Some of that suggests that there's an uptick in the virus. And we know that the fall and winter are coming and that's the perfect time for viruses as people hunker indoors more than you know, some of the warmer months, et cetera. So, and we're already seeing a rise in influenza cases week on week, um, which also suggests that it's respiratory viral season. So why are we still talking about boosters? We're talking about boosters for two main reasons. One is that immunity wanes, which means whether you catch the virus and get the infection, or you got a vaccine and or both, that that immunity you have wanes over time. And with COVID-19, it appears it wanes pretty significantly. The second other issue is even beyond waning immunity or immunity decreasing over time is that the virus is smart. And so the virus has evolved over time to find a way to evade or dodge the immune responses that we generate either from infection or vaccines. And that has played out in terms of new variants emerging over time. And as each new variant hits, it's more immune evasive. For now, the virus also learned how to become more transmissible. So you package together immune evasiveness, you package together uh, increased transmissibility, and that's what's driven the waves of infection. Interestingly, we're already seeing a new, so the current one is the BA4 or 5, which is predominating uh, currently in the United States. There are newer variants that are being seen worldwide. It appears that the virus is still evolving and still building evasive mechanisms. For example, there's a BA4 
4.6 now that's actually out competing the BA4.5 and is making up a little under 15% of the new uh, surveilled cases. So again, we're very concerned about what the fall and the rest of the fall and winter will look like. And so the new generation of vaccines have played on some of the early data we have. And so the new vaccines are called bivalent vaccines, which means that they cover two different strains of the virus. So they cover the current one that's circulating the BA4 slash 5, and it also covers the original or circulating strain. Because there's a new term we're using in the vaccine field, which is breath. Breath means how broad or how how what's the uh, diversity of viruses or strains that you can cover with a vaccine. So what these bivalent vaccines bring to the table beyond just boosting, so intrinsic with the word means it you know boosts your immune system, but it also allows you have have a breadth of immunity against both past and current variants. So while we watch to see what happens in the future, this positions us best when immunity is waning. Uh, given a new vaccine to boost immunity and boost an immunity can, that can offer cross-protection against at least the variants that have emerged to date. So, you know, the, the data um, is pretty clear from, you know, animal studies and some of the early, what we call immunogenicity studies, which is looking at people's immune responses to the vaccines, that they should work well. Um, you know, a lot of the studies we did, um, you know, were based on the BA1 or the original Omicron variant. They were not based on the BA4 or 5. Some of the data is extrapolated, but we hope that it should hold up uh, for, for what would be uh, a winter surge of viruses. The only thing I would like to add is that, again, we've seen with prior boosters, I think there's a little bit of booster fatigue going on. And, you know, about, you know, in the U.S. still about 30% or less that have received boosters. And when you look at the racial ethnic uh, minority mix of people receiving boosters, Blacks are trailing behind every other race and or ethnicity with regards to booster uptake. So again, we really want to get the word out, you know, uh, you know, to position yourself best for the fall and winter, especially if you're immune compromised, especially if you're older, if you're racial ethnic minority, you have comorbidities, you really want to go out to get your flu shots and get your your COVID booster you know what everyone's calling your fluorona fluorona vaccine right so get your flu in a corona vaccine ahead of of the fall <laughs> and, and can Dr. I say something Tom, Tom oh, can I by all means please so Dr. O, here's here's the here's I think one of the crux of the problem that we're having when I talk to a couple of people about the uh, vaccine boosters they tell me I don't need them because the, the, the COVID-19 is no more than catching the flu or a cold and our bodies will immediately adjust to that. So why should I need to take it? And then, you, then we have the boosters and now we have a vaccine for the flu. So now you got people up saying, which should I take? Young people say, I don't take flu shots. Elderly people say, I take flu shots, but now you're telling me I need to take a flu shot and I need to take a booster. I think that I think eventually there's going to be some kind of uh, vaccine that will handle both of them, which will help solve part of this problem. But where we are right now, what should be our message to the young people with regards to taking the shot? And uh, what, what should our message be to the seniors? And I know the comorbidity, and I know that many people don't realize that people die from the flu and die from COVID. So help us maybe package this in a way that we can make it simplified to show the importance of why each of these are important at this particular time in history. Yeah, thank you, Reverend Perry. So here's what I wanna say that, you know, getting the vaccine, you know, getting immunity through the vaccine trumps getting immunity through having the infection itself. And here are some of the reasons, you know, beyond all the things you're you're rightly mentioning, right, um, is that, you know, two things worry me. One is that there are complications that tend to occur weeks to months and maybe, you know, years after people have had COVID that we're only beginning to understand. So one example could be that we're seeing higher incidence of blood clots, for example, 
right? Um, at some point, we saw even high incidence of mental health disorders and in people who recovered from COVID, which could be multifactorial, right? It may not just be the virus, it could be the long hospital stay, it might be fear, fear anxiety that followed it, the isolation stigma, you know, we can list all the things that contribute to that, but we don't know, you know, to what extent uh, COVID also contributes uh, uh, to that, right? Um, we've seen some suggestion of injury to the brain that occurs, um, even at the sub level, right? So I think, you know, some of us are saying that even if COVID ended, you know, science will still be doing long COVID for the next five to 10 years, because I think we still need to fully understand that, you know, what infection, you know, does to individuals and what the long-term effects are. I think the estimates are that there are millions of Americans now who recovered from COVID who still have not been able to go back to work or cannot return to their pre-illness level of functioning uh, you know, regarding to the occupation. So, you know, getting the infection, uh, even if you have a mild syndrome, doesn't mean you're out of the woods at all. I think there's still so much more, you know, for us to understand about the long-term harms of the virus. So I always want to uh, encourage and almost chastise, you know, it's a strong word, everyone to, again, the pathway to getting immunity through the vaccine trumps getting the infection because beyond uh, you know that syndrome that there still could be long-term effects that that may uh, affect your overall health for you know weeks and months and year, years to come. Dr. Um, o, Dr. O, one question here. People say that the vex, like you mentioned the blood clots, I think what people need to know from you is how safe these the vaccine has been in terms of people um, suffering from the vaccine itself, yeah. you know, like, because yeah. the, the rumor is, is that, you know, like, for example, the Johnson and Johnson one, that people were getting the blood clots. So people said, well, I'm not going to take it because uh, even if I take the Pfizer, I'm, I may get the blood clot or I may get some brain freeze or whatever. But as a, as a immunologist, you ought to be able to tell us how safe these vaccines are. Yeah. Um, so that going forward, that maybe some of the hesitancy will not be there if we know that they are effective. And I, I know they are, but coming from me, it's religious. Coming from you, it's scientific. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we kind of need both because we are real. <laughs> you know, some society, you know, listen to the religious more than, and I think we need to meet everyone at, at where they are. Yeah, so, you know, my answer is just math. Right. If you look at the frequency of side effects or adverse events with the vaccines, they're orders of magnitude lower than the rates that occur in individuals that have COVID-19. So two examples I'll give is if you look at the blood clots, right, or clotting issues that follow either having COVID or the vaccine, there's way more by many fold higher risk of having a blood clot when you get COVID than if you get the vaccine. And some of these uh, incidents are like in the one to double digits per one million doses. That's how infrequent um, they are. And that's having the events and many of them are not necessarily lethal or have like significant effects. So my answer is always very simple. Your chance of getting those things that you cite against the vaccine, including things like pericarditis, et cetera, are higher with the infection than they are with getting the vaccine. So even just at face value with the numbers game, the math, pretty clearly the vaccines, uh, getting immunity through the vaccines does you so much better than getting you know, the infection themselves. And you know, again, I just want to remark how, you know, one of the reasons, and we'll talk about this in the, you know, I guess in later parts of the segment, why mRNA vaccines are really going to be the wave of the future, is that we've seen how in spite of uh, us getting these vaccines, you know, uh, studied in a rel relatively short time, again, without shortchanging, um, you know, scientific rigor, we've seen how amazingly, incredibly safe they are. Now we're talking about second doses, third doses, and fourth doses, and people are tolerating these things well. You know, I always say that even those of us involved in the trials, if we had a best guess of what the vaccine safety should have been, it's gone better than even what we could have expected. So I, I think that, you know, some of those fears around safety side effects. I think that we've built you know, two years of real world data. It looks exactly like what we saw in the clinical trials, which you know, came before they became available in the public. And so again, that's why I always like to remind people historically, you know, it's funny how if you look at newspaper clippings of what people said, 
when the oral polio vaccine became available, you can superimpose those newspaper headlines with a lot of things we're going through. There's always that reluctance for something new, even if it's at the work, there's the watch and wait, watch and see kind of approach. But I think that that's past. And then, you know, in a naughty way, I also want to remind people because there was a lot of disinformation around the COVID-19 vaccine early on. So I want you to go back to those Twitter sources, those you know, public people who discredited the vaccine and called it the mark of the beast, and you know, blacklist them, right? Get you know, get them off your Twitter feed, right? Because you've now seen that all the fear and you know, mongering didn't really you know pan out uh, you know two years you know two and a half years into the vaccines become available so i think we need to think about credible sources you know and credible sources are not just us in the medical community but also people like reverend Perrin clayton who have front row seats to the work that we do are respected and have gravitas and credibility with the people you intersect with i mean we all need to get you know the message out and hopefully that does that there's another question you said reverend Perry. i just wanted to mention that it's you know, regarding mixing the, the vaccines for respiratory viral illnesses, vaccines are virus specific, right? So, you know, flu vaccines for flu, COVID vaccines for, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but we are able to put vaccines together. We do it already with measles, mump, and rubella. It's all in the same shot, but you're covering three viruses with diphtheria, tetanus, uh, pertussis, the Tdap and DTAP vaccines, we also put them together. So yes, you know, I, I hope maybe in the next iteration of boosters, I'm sure, and Moderna had that three mentioned working on one, although they couldn't get it ready for this season. But I anticipate in the future, we're really going to have the Flurona vaccines where you can have, you know, two viruses in one, and maybe even more in the future as we continue to uh, explore the bounds of, you know, how much more viruses can we control with mRNA technology. So that's uh, hopefully in the future. And, and, and Dr. Rowe, we have about 15 or so minutes, but I definitely want you to touch upon, if you would, the mRNA. You mentioned that, and then we want to talk about the your, your research and how people can be involved, um, and also about flu in terms of children. But uh, share with us about the, because again, I, I said this on the previous shows, you are you are in the history, <clears throat> the medical history books, the sociology history books. You are continuing, you are already a history maker, but tell us about the mRNA. Uh, and, and you're involved in, and how exciting that 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 should be for the regular consumer. Yeah, exactly. So really just to break it down in simple terms. So mRNA is just like a code. It's a code you can write using what we call nucleotides, which are the building blocks of proteins, right? So you can use, you can create a genetic code to create any structure of a protein that you want. And the reason why that that's such a, a great approach is that it has many applications, you know. So, for example, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID uses the spike protein. So a lot of people have seen that knobbly matchstick head, you know, projection from the virus that we've seen in all the cartoons of the virus. That's it uses that spike protein to attach to cells, which is the early steps in causing infection. And so what the mRNA does is if you can simulate the spike protein, you can now cause the immune system to recognize that as a foreign substance or enemy and attack that. And mm -hmm. by attacking that, you can abort that uh, infection process uh, from occurring. And you can do that for one virus and you can do that for many other viruses. Now in the field of virology, while we're excited about that, is that there's certain uh, viruses, like the flu mutates more than SARS-CoV-2, let's just say, okay? Um, another virus is like HIV. HIV uh, exhibits more diversity than SARS-CoV-2, so that even within the same individual, you can have different strains in one individual. So one of the frustrating things, for example, with a virus like HIV that has more diversity than SARS-CoV-2, for example, is you make a vaccine, it works for one strain, but not another in the same individual, and that's why they fail. But for the first time with mRNA technology, we can include genetic codes for three different constructs, four different constructs, five different constructs, right? So that we that we can potentially outsmart difficult to, to eradicate viruses by creating different constructs that should be able to cover the breadth or the diversity of viruses that can be there. So it's really exciting. So for example, Moderna has done a, such a thing for HIV, and we're gonna hear those results in 2023 
where they've created different mRNA constructs for HIV and want to do the first thing, which is look at safety. And of course, we'll look into, you know, at least the immunogenicity. Are they getting the right antibody responses to these? So, um, and because mRNA is so easy to produce, you know, I've been saying that, you know, in the flu season, you try to predict which strains are going to be circulating and you create a vaccine ahead of time to give it, but sometimes we miss it. And sometimes the efficacy of the flu vaccine can be as low from one year, 15, 16%, and maybe in the best years, as high as 70, 80%. But it depends on how well this, the strain matches the vaccine. Now, if you can produce a vaccine so much easier, like mRNA technology, you can imagine a scenario where, for example, in this flu season, if the bivalent, you know, if the flu vaccines we're giving don't work, we can even reconstruct the flu vaccine within the same season and be able to respond much more timely to uh, viruses that mutate. So the applications there are just uh, amazing. Another exciting application for mRNA is in cancer treatment. So many times, you know, cancer cells are abnormal from the body cells in some ways in that they produce certain proteins, what they call new antigens or new antigens, right? And so mRNA can then allow you, especially if you know the tumor biology, so you know what, what are tumor characteristics, what are the antigens that expresses that are abnormal or different from the body's own cells, you can then create an mRNA vaccine that can then produce that protein of interest. And what it does is that it's targeted to the immune system so that all of a sudden you can make a person's immune system fight their own cancer or tumor cells, right? And the interesting thing is, you know, we think of, and this is something I learned from someone that I thought is something I always wanted to share, is we think of cancer based on organs, prostate cancer, breast cancer, mm -hmm. testicular cancer, colon cancer. But in the field of oncology, they're finding that many of these cancers share similar tumor characteristics, such that one treatment can actually have efficacy for a diversity of cancers because they share the same biology. So the field is moving for, let's not look for how to treat just breast cancer, you know, let's, you know, just identify whatever target it is. And it may work for certain people with thyroid cancer, with breast cancer, with skin cancer. It's, in, it's just incredible, you know, so that you're no longer seeing cancer as an organ disease, but you're seeing it as, you know, um, you know, uh, a, a biologic disease that can be targeted mm. with a different mm. kind of therapy so that you can have one therapy that works for many different kinds of cancers if they share, you know, some of the same uh, tumor biology. So, you know, again, lots of early studies have begun to look at things like head and neck cancers and some of the, you know, early studies are promising. And I always tell everyone, stay tuned in the next five to 10 years. I think mRNA is going to introduce huge revolutions in infectious disease and, and cancer treatments. Dr. Yeah, we have about 15 minutes. So let's just kind of weigh, weigh in and questions that you might have on your mind. Reverend Clayton? Yes. Dr. O, were you actually, were you saying that with this uh, mRNA technology that uh, things like cancer or, or monkeypox could, could be uh, prevented if, 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 if this technology is used? Uh, yeah, so is that where we heading? Yeah, so for viral infections, we're talking about prevention, right? So if we know how exactly to disrupt or stop or halt or diminish the way a virus can cause an infection or just replicate or make copies of itself, we can prevent those infections. Now for cancer for now, the, the treatment, it's on the treatment end rather than prevention. But the point is that if you are able to identify unique uh, you know, proteins that, you know, tumor cells uh, uh, produce that are not, because you don't want to rev up the immune system and it destroys the body cells, right? You want something that distinguishes the cancer cell from the body cells so that when you target that, the immune system attacks just the cancer cells without attacking the body. So this is the future of personalized medicine. And I think oncology are taking some of the, as a field, are taking huge steps in that regard so that people can actually now receive treatments. In fact, there's almost a science fiction approach here where if <laughs> someone has a cancer, they can do the tumor biology, see what antigen it expresses and create an mRNA vaccine specific for that tumor Right? So you can do the tumor biology, know the antigens, create an mRNA vaccine specific for that, and then give it to the person to help them you know, treat their cancer. And I think that that's just 
uh, amazing personalized medicine and uh, mRNA technology is one of the ways to be able to achieve that. Dr. O, one quick question. The, in the book, The Emperor of All Maladies, toward the end of the book, they talked about this genetic engineering. So they said that your antibodies could not, at a point, couldn't see the cancer cells. So what they could do is they could take a gene and, and alter it so that when it's put back, um, your antibodies would see the cancer cells and then be able to fight them. And I thought that was just phenomenal. So what you're saying, is that the kind of same thing that's going on or is just something even more, more uh, modernistic than I'm, than I'm thinking? No, you know, Rev, sometimes I wonder who's the scientist and who's the reverend, right? But <laughs> I think you're right. So that's, you know, so selecting the target for the tumor cells, I think is where the work is, right? Because you are right, right? So some cancers actually result from, um, you know, fail, fa um, failure of the immune surveillance system, right? There's very clearly like immune surveillance things, um, don't function well, then you're predisposed to certain cancers. And one of the breakthroughs in treatments have been what they call immune checkpoint in inhibitors, right? That have already shown some promise suggesting that that's a viable pathway again. So it's identifying what part of this tumor cell distinguishes from human cells and what's a good thing to target that can mark them for destruction by immune system. So that's really um, the application here. And I think that's uh, what you're alluding to. And James, I want, I want to kind of jump <clears throat> jump in if I could, but Dr. Dr. I do definitely want you to share with us how folks can participate in your, your trials because under, the underpinning of what you've what you've been discussing since we came on air is the fact that we are discovering. And for this discovery, we want to all there's an opportunity for us to participate in this discovery. But before I ask you to answer that question, tell us about uh, I want to go back to the vaccines that are available for this this upcoming uh, flu season. Uh, whether it depends on your age or whether your conditions, what are just to kind of help the ground people in the fact that there's there's a war we can fight in terms of uh, uh, bolstering your body and taking ownership of your health. And to do that, there's there's certainly some some vaccines that might be available this that are available this coming flu season. Yes, so there are uh, approved vaccines and there are experimental vaccines. So the approved vaccines are typically quadrivalent. Quadrivalent quad means four, and so what it means, it covers four different strains. And typically, the mix is that they cover two influenza A strains and two influenza B strains. Majority of influenza infections, at least in this part of the northern hemisphere, are by influenza A. So everyone, you know, there are many uh, approved quadrivalent vaccines out there for people to take. And then on our end, we are doing a clinical trial involving messenger RNA, the same technology for the COVID vaccine that we made. This now is for influenza and it's also quadrivalent. It's mRNA that encodes for influenza, two influenza A strains, as well as two influenza B strains. And so what we're trying to do is we want to go head to head with an approved quadrivalent vaccine. And so we'll be offering the mRNA influenza vaccine um, as well as the quadrivalent. Nobody gets a placebo like we did the COVID-19 study. So everyone who comes in here gets one kind of a flu shot, either the approved one or the experimental one. And we've kicked off these studies in individuals who are 65 years and older, and so who haven't received their flu shot yet, and who are at least four weeks or so from any other vaccine that they've received. And so I think this is prime time for anyone listening who wants to be part of our study. Again, um, you can email us as help us discover at yield.edu. We have two phone numbers, 203-737-6372 or 203-737-5058. So again, 203-737-6372 and 203-737-5058. Sometime in mid-November, we will expand the study to now include 18 years and older. So we're happy to make appointments now ahead of mid-November. Um, and I will say that some of our early uh, data that we are aware of suggest that you know it's able to build uh, a, a good immune response uh, that compares to, if not exceeds, that of the influenza vaccine. But it's still, again, the approved influenza vaccine. However, again, these are you know, preliminary data that we have, and we want to um, you know, roll out this new study to really look for you know, the efficacy um, in a much more broader uh, population. And Reverend Clayton, did I hear you say that you, you've already, this week you'll be uh, an, an official 
ordained and baptized into this discipline. <laughs> Anointed and appointed. One hour after the show ends, uh, I will go see Dr. O. Oh, that's fantastic. Jensen, everyone, we have, again, uh, eight more minutes. Let, let's just weigh in with questions that might be burning on your heart, mind, and soul. Yeah, so, Tom, I think one of the things that we're trying to do is for the people that we help to recruit for the Pfizer study for the COVID, we're reaching out to those people. And I've asked Jackie and Sunday to kind of start a database so that other future studies coming up, getting the word out, and if, if people have already been in the study and it's been successful for them, it's easier for them. And then these people become our, our poster child for the study because they can say, look, look at me, I'm 65, I'm 70, and I, I, went, I did the study and, it's, and it, I didn't get the flu or you know, it, it worked well for me, that kept me, kept me out of the hospital. So I think that this is one of the avenues that we might use going forward in terms of our recruitment in the community as YCCI ambassadors. And so we're gonna spend some time on that. And one of the other things that I was thinking about and I mentioned to Jackie and Sunday today is how can we get the young ambassadors fired up about messaging and getting involved in the flu uh, vaccine? So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to work on that. Can we get them to do flyers? Can we get them to, I don't know, uh, when it's open, uh, when, the, when the trials will open for them, can we get them to, can we recruit them within our body? And I think that's going to be a larger message for us. If we can succeed here, then we can succeed and a broader audience. Um, and I think that that's what makes our program, Cultural Ambassadors, such a, um, a definitive and awesome program. It definitely is. Uh, uh, four more minutes, Dr. O, I just want to ask perhaps my last question uh, and a good time for everybody else. But in terms of youth and children and the new booster, um, the New Haven school system just three weeks ago, there were a, a significant number of parents whose children were not didn't even have the basic immunizations. Mm -hmm. So they were not even gonna be able to come, go to school if they didn't, I think it was like by September 30th, it was a deadline. There was over a thousand plus families and young people that had not even had the basic immunizations to, to go to school. Uh, so I guess I'm curious if you wanted to kind of share a little bit about the recent guidance about children and, and the need for boosters, you know, immunizations obviously, but, but obviously this booster as well. Yeah, so the current recommendation is for at least for individuals 12 years and above to get the bivalent boosters as long as you're two months out, two months out from anything. So two months out from your primary series, two months out for your from your first booster, for example, um, you know, for people 12 to 16 also were eligible for a booster a couple of months ago. So two months out from whatever you got, you should get the bivalent booster if you're 12 years and above. Only the Pfizer vaccine is authorized the bivalent for 12 through age 17. And then Pfizer to Moderna are approved from age 18 and above. So just pay attention that 12 to 17, only the Pfizer vaccine is authorized for that group. But then 18 years and you know you could get either the Moderna or Pfizer and both of them work uh, quite well. Those are the current recommendations. We are currently in the Pfizer trials, conducting trials in younger kids less than age 12. And we would be doing some studies in kids six months through less than five years. We think in the start date might be about January to look at the bivalent vaccine, both as a booster and also potentially a primary series, right? So that's people even starting out with the bivalent, not just getting us a booster. So we will be generating some of the data for younger kids. We have already submitted to FDA for kids five through 11. Um, I, I think the FDA should probably make a decision in it this October to allow it drop from 12 through you know, age five, you know, so again, to have, you know, younger kids to be protected. We saw, and history should be our teacher, right? We saw when older people had taken up vaccines and there were no vaccines available for kids at mm -hmm. some point, you know, what two thirds or higher of infections were occurring in people under the age of 18. So we see that the virus easily shifts demographics depending on mm -hmm. vaccine coverage. So I worry that as these younger kids immunity wanes from their vaccines that they got a while ago, 
that they could again become vulnerable. However, I will say it appears that children appear to enjoy from our longitudinal data, a little bit longer protection from the vaccines than older individuals. So for example, I wouldn't recommend a second booster for you know, anyone under 18, because we just don't have that data as at this point, maybe for older individuals. But I think going into the fall, everyone should get a bivalent booster. Again, everyone should be reminded that we're only still beginning to learn some of the long-term issues uh, concerning COVID. And remember, our kids are different. You know, many of us are adults, we're older, you know, having a, you know, um, a struggle at this age of our lives, maybe 10 years, 20 years, whatever, you know, God has given us left in our lives. But for kids, they're just beginning their lives. And if mm -hmm. they have a long-term complication, it's for the rest of their lives. And so I think we should do well to try to make sure that our kids have the right kind of coverage they need moving into a season where they could be vulnerable to infection. Gents, we have about uh, 16 more seconds, Reverend Perry, Reverend Clayton. No, I think what Dr. O just said is so important because that's what we learned. We learned that the people who got the vaccine, their kids came home from school, bam, and everybody in the house who didn't get it got, got, you know, got COVID. Uh, we we got to make this a family affair. We got to really make sure that everybody in the family is is uh, is aware of how important these vaccines are. And I, you know, we spoke earlier when we when we were growing up, our parents just when the vaccine came out, they just we didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, polio, they gave us the vaccine. Flu, whatever it was, we took it, and we're healthier for it. And I don't know what's going on with the, the, this particular era and generation we're in now, but we've really got to go back to understanding the history of how important these vaccines are and, 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 the, and the effort and the work of the scientists to bring us to where we are in one of the greatest nations of the world. And we have people who yet won't, won't take the vaccine. That's just ridiculous. Reverend Clayton, and again, the way, the way it works is that uh, the station will play the music, and that means that we're being kicked off, but we're going to talk, talk, we're going to keep on talking until we get kicked off. Reverend Clayton. Yeah, Tom, thank you for this platform today. And Dr. O, you were tremendous with the, the information you gave us today is extremely priceless. Thank you so much for sharing with not only us, but our audience as well. Peace well, to you. And, and yes. Dr. O, they're, they're looking for an Eddie Murphy um, lookalike. <laughs> if you're looking for a second job <laughs> in the acting industry, you make a few calls. <laughs> sure, do it. And you know, I have, I have twins, so there might be two of us. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and Dr. O, I just want to just echo <laughs> what Reverend Clayton has mentioned about the you positioned us for the, the sobriety and the, the sobriety, the challenge, but also what can happen if we collectively reach out our, our arms around one another and realize it's for everyone's benefit across across the globe. Thank you so much for, for what you do at 24-7, 365. That's it, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Boy, myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Hate it swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down. I just got to get up, get up. Because yeah. this is my road. Let's camera action. I'm ready to go. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down. I just got to get up, get up. Yeah.